This is a Stand With Lynette podcast. You have episode 54, The Nature of Miracles, with Rosalie Mass-Taylor. What would your life be like if you knew you could stand firmly on the covenant path, come what may? My name is Lynette Shepard, and I am here to help you do just that. If you are a Latter-day Saint woman with a desire to brighten your faith as the world grows darker, you are in the right place. Together, let's stand. Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Stand with Lynette podcast, or if you're here for the first time, I'm so glad you're here. No matter where you're joining me from, this is going to be such a good discussion today because this podcast is all about standing with the Savior, Jesus Christ, what it looks like to stand with Him. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter what challenges we face, how can we yoke ourselves to Him so firmly that our faith will stay intact no matter what? I feel honored to be able to share the stories of other women who are striving to do just that, including my guest today, Rosalie Mass-Taylor. Her story is one that is filled with hope and with miracles, though she defines miracles differently than she did at the beginning of her journey, which included the amputation of her son's leg when he was four years old because of a dog attack. She said she has learned what the true nature of miracles is, and it's not what she expected, but it has strengthened her faith so much in the Savior Jesus Christ, and I cannot wait for you to meet Rosalie and hear her incredible story. So without further ado, my friends, let me introduce you to my new friend. Hello, friends. I am so excited to introduce you to my friend, Rosalie Mass-Taylor today, who is here to share her story of faith and her journey of standing with the Savior. And I cannot wait to hear what she has to say. So welcome, Rosalie. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I am so happy to be here chatting with you. I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. I am happy to have you here. So can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family? Sure. Um, we are Southern California natives and we moved here to Texas uh, about actually right when the pandemic hit, like literally the weekend it hit. I always know how long we've lived here and how long the how long ago the pandemic hit because that was the week when we moved here. So it was March of 2020 and um, we have three young boys ages 12, 9 and 5. So all in very different stages of life. So that's really fun as a mother. Um, I have my hand in a lot of different things. I help people um, with travel stuff. I work for a travel agency. I do social media. I'm a musician. I write children books. So a lot of projects that I love that I try to figure out how to fit them all in and somehow they do. So <laughs> that's awesome. I'm so intrigued by all of the different avenues. <laughs> how do you find time for all of that? Yeah, I don't, I think I just have to think like, okay, where, where does my, where should I be putting my energy? And it fluctuates almost from day to day and what's priority. And um, with the children's books, that'll change like from the time of year. And um, like, if I want to do school visits and I need to try and get stuff in at the beginning of the school year. So I don't know, everything kind of fluctuates and I just kind of fit it all in like this little puzzle. So what kind of children's books do you write? So I have um, a picture book that I'm currently, well, a picture book and a middle grade novel that I'm currently working on. And um, 
it'll kind of tie into everything that we talk about, but I, I focus on characters with disabilities because there's a huge gap in the publishing industry with that. And after I discovered that I've always loved writing and I love storytelling and I just felt so impressed to go that avenue because we need more literature for children that have people with disabilities in it because it's just not seen enough. There's not enough representation out there. I love that. So that leads us right in to your story. <laughs> so you had a traumatic experience that led to one of your kids now having a disability. So can you tell us what happened? Yeah. So in 2015, um, my oldest son, he was a little over four and a half years old. Our dog attacked him and it was so bad that they had to amputate um, his leg below the knee. And yeah, it's like you had said, it was very traumatic. I feel like there's no word really like trauma and traumatic. I feel like can't even explain how we really felt um, during that time. But we were definitely thrown into the disability world. Um, I think I've, I know I've learned that anybody at any moment can acquire a disability. And you never really think about that unless you have someone close to you, you know, that has gone through, um, that has become disabled through trauma. Um, a lot, you know, some people are born that way, but I just never thought we would be in that world. And all of a sudden we were in it and we were knee deep and we had to figure it out and adapt. And it was a long process. Did you have other kids at the time? Yes. So my middle child then was ab about 18 months old at the time when it all happened. Wow. Mm -hmm. So walk me through what this was like at the beginning of the journey. What when you this attack happened and you have this little kid now, I'm just trying to picture what that's even like as a mom to try to handle all of this with your child now in in this bad situation. What was that like for you? Well, for me, and and this could have been different for everybody because Hunter specifically did not want to accept the fact that his leg was gone. And and I think that could be that can be in so many situations. How many times do we go through something and we just don't want to accept it? So therefore we can't move forward and we can't heal and we can't recover. And that's where we were at with Hunter for I felt like months and months and months. He um it's like he just cannot reason and rationalize that his leg was gone forever. Because what child at that age like can comprehend that? I feel like he wasn't so little to where it was like, okay, this is my new life. And like, just like when you're two, one and two years old, it's like, oh, I'm going to go from crawling to walking because that's just what I do. I just start walking. Um, and I felt like Hunter was too old to where it was like he was too aware. And this is just my theory as a mom, but he was just too aware. And so therefore it was like, but too aware, but not mature enough to know that this is my life. And sometimes people lose limbs. So it was months and months and months. He did not want to walk. He did not want to wear his prosthetic leg. Um, a lot of angry outbursts, a lot of crying um and at the same time 
that those were sprinkled in with him being a normal kid too. He would crawl around. He became the fastest hopper I've ever seen. Like he would just hop on one leg because his body adapted to not having a leg. And so that was normal for him to just hop around or crawl around. And, you know, why put on a prosthetic leg that's big and clunky when I could just hop and crawl? So um, there was just a lot of, man, just like bizarre things you were dealing with. I can not relate to having the amputation, but my son, when he was four, had a bone cyst in his heel that mm -hmm. left him unable to walk for nine months. And mm -hmm. so I can relate to the hopping. <laughs> his calf <laughs> yeah. was massive. He's just like, I don't need this walker. Like, just get <laughs> out of my way. I can go. They do just kind of adapt. But yeah. that sounds like it was kind of a, a long adaptation for Hunter. Yeah, yeah. Um, what his school psychologist explained to me that if he accepted that prosthetic leg, he accepted that his leg was never going to come back. And I think that's why he was just so reluctant to want to move on to using um, a prosthetic leg because it was like, no, I'm just going to hold out. I'm going to hold out as long as I can for this leg to come back because in his mind, it just didn't make sense. And it, it was eight months after he had lost his leg that I took him to this um, like disability sports expo type thing. And there was all these different sports to try. And I was pushing him in the stroller at the time because because he still wasn't walking. But he had um, a running leg and he had recently got it and it kind of changed the way he walked um when he did attempt to walk but he saw some kids out there playing soccer and I'm like just go out there like you can do it just go out there and and he did and I have it on video because I'm like I'm gonna get this because even if he's hobbling along this is still awesome that he's out here and I just will never forget he took a firm step on that prosthetic leg and then put all his weight on it and kicked the ball with his sound leg and I'm like oh my gosh he did it like he did it. And that was, like I said, after about eight months, he lost his leg in February. That was in October. And um, by Halloween, he was trick-or-treating. He was walking around. And um, yeah, we had more more ups and downs after that. Like, because once he accepted it physically, he was a little bit older than he had accepted it. More mentally and emotionally and socially, that was a big one too. To accept his difference in a social environment was um, was another big hurdle. But yeah, so that was how things were in the beginning. How was it socially? What what did the other kids, what was his experience with the other kids his age? Because he was so young at that time. What what did yeah. the, socially, what did that look like? So kindergartners, I feel like are that is a great age. They're pretty innocent and accepting. And so I feel like there were no issues when he was five and six years old, and then he hit seven. And that's when I feel like they really start to see differences in each other and everything, clothing, hair color, freckles. But then you have a kid that's missing a leg that has this robot leg. And he was known as the kid with the broken foot. And I didn't like that. I didn't like the word broken. I remember I volunteered at his school one time and the kid was like, oh, um, you're Hunter's mom? I go, yeah. Oh, he's the kid with the broken foot. And I go, it's not broken. Don't call it that. <laughs> like yeah. I kind of had to like, like no, I that's not okay. And in their mind, you know, I get it. I get it. That is how they see it. But I just wanted them to know it is not broken. He has 
a prosthetic leg that provides him mobility and that is not broken. And, um, and he just, I think it was more, he didn't talk much. Um, it was more his behavior that I knew that it was hard for him because, uh, we went like a little bit of time after the initial accident of that trauma and healing and then accepting his leg. And then I felt like we were kind of doing okay. And then we hit seven and that's where I just saw like emotional outbursts and anger. And it seemed like he didn't accept himself or who he was. And so he probably felt like other people didn't, even though they probably did. So uh, that was when we put him in some counseling and that person really helped him to learn how to express himself and learn to accept in a sense, his culture, which was being a part of the disability community, being part of the amputee community. Um, that was the point too, when he did not ever want to show his prosthetic leg, he would wear, it would, would be the hottest day and he would wear pants. Oh, and I've, this is a part that we kind of left out. He at seven also, we don't know what happened, but, um, his, he had bilateral hearing loss. We went in, we took him in and they're like, yeah, he needs hearing aids. And we have no clue. Oh it's just, I, yeah. So this kid had two hearing aids in and a prosthetic leg and he would wear his hood and his pants every day to school. That and, must have broken your heart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I just wanted him to love himself and he's there now he's there now. And, um, which is why I'm like, yeah, that was a hard time back then. It's almost like you, you almost forget how hard it was, but yeah, I just wanted him to know, like, it was okay. It was okay for people to know that he had his difference, but at the same time, I had to let him work it out because I, there was only mo so much I can say, but having someone else, having a therapist, like really work through those feelings. And by the end of the, um, therapy he was wearing shorts to school and he had taken his hood off so we saw these changes in him that were that were really cool and he just after that he just gained more and more confidence as he got older that's awesome even yeah. i think people who don't have those kind of disabilities they struggle with confidence too and so he's 12 now is that what you said yes yeah and now he's got this confidence and he's okay with himself that's amazing. That's that shows yeah. that you guys have done some things right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Part of me feels like, okay, now he's getting into, he just started sixth grade this year. And part of me just wonders, I'm like, you know what? He might be at, like going through another dip again of feeling like, okay. And he might not talk to us about it. And it's just going to be one of those things too. It's like, all right, you work it out. And one of the biggest things I do is I really tried to keep him connected with people in his life who know what it's like to be him, it, whether they're missing fingers or they have physical differences. And um, gosh, right now we're actually going through a tough time because he has a sore on his leg and he's not able to wear his prosthetic leg. He's been off of it for almost a month now. And it's one thing to like go to school with a prosthetic leg. It's another thing to go with a bare amputated leg right. because there's nothing covering it. You know, it, there's no, um, it's just, a, it's more shocking 
And, but he has to right now because, um, or I pull him out of school and it was, he didn't want that option, but I knew he was going to have a hard time with it. Once the doctor said, you got to keep your leg off. And I was like, okay, why don't we talk to Alex? Because Alex knows how you feel. And I text him and we set up a time for him to talk to someone who mentors him and, um, it helped him to feel better. And whenever he, like we had to use a wheelchair for Halloween to go trick or treating because he could not crutch around the neighborhood. He could, but that would have been miserable. And he wasn't happy about it. And I don't blame him. What kid wants to trick or treat with a wheelchair when they know they have a prosthetic leg that they just can't wear. And so I go, you know, Hunter, when you're having a hard time, I want you to think of Aaron Fotheringham. Aaron Fotheringham is um, someone who is in a, uh, who uses a wheelchair and he does extreme sports in his wheelchair. And he like goes off ramps and does flips and like crazy stuff, crazy stuff. And we love him. We love watching him. He was on um, America's Got Talent Extreme Sports or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. But I go, I want you to think of him when you're having like a moment. And I just saw his wheels turning and then the smile just came across his face. And I was like, yeah, is that good? He's like, yeah, that, yes, that makes me feel so much better. I'm like, okay, good just do that. <laughs> so that's awesome that you have a community that he can relate to. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think that's huge for, for everybody, everybody. To, to feel we like they that. belong. Yep. So yeah. when you moved to Texas in the middle of a pandemic, how was that? How was that <laughs> as far as community and belonging? Oh my gosh, that was not fun. Um, yeah, that was just really hard. I mean, luckily, like, hunters community they're already like all over the country and so staying connected was the same for that in that regards um but i mean i think we just did what everyone else did and well at least probably what the majority of the people did and hunkered down in our home and grew close to our family because that's what everybody kind of had to do and um and then you know he went to school the next year, luckily, Texas opened up really quick and we stayed open the whole time. So he went to school and made new friends there and did fine. So that's awesome. Yeah. Even people, there were a few people who moved into our ward during that time. And I just felt so bad for them because oh there's, you lose that sense of community. You know, it was yeah. like really hard to integrate into this new, into this new area. Yeah. So my heart goes out to anyone who moved during COVID, oh, yeah. especially if it's fun. to a different state. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard. Yeah. So through all of this crazy experience and learning and the growing and watching your son struggle and realizing you have to let him struggle and figure it out. How did the savior show up for you throughout that journey? Everywhere. I would say like initially, I mean, when the accident happened, I mean, I, I had no clue. All, all I got was a phone call from my husband saying that he had, that Hunter had been bit. Um, and then through a few phone calls, I finally got the phone call that like just kind of rocked everything. And I heard him talking to people in the background. Cause in my mind, I literally thought this is probably no big deal. He got bit and he probably literally needs stitches, maybe a cast. And I don't know why I thought, I think that was like self-protection of like, this is the like the least amount that could happen with that dog. And I, I didn't go past that until I knew more, had more information. And 
when I heard my husband say, where are you going to land the bird is when I realized this is much worse than I could ever had thought could happen. And that's when I knew, I mean, you only bring in a helicopter if someone's life is in danger. And so I remember getting on the helicopter and lift and just lifting up into the air and somehow staying very calm. I say somehow, but I know, I know what power that was that kept me calm and kept me to find some peace. But I just remember lifting into the air and we had to fly like over this big empty area to get to the children's hospital. And it was dusk and the sun was setting and you had to fly over kind of this little mountain range. And I just looked out the window and the first thoughts that came to my mind was, God, I see you. I can physically see you right now in the sunset and in the clouds and in the mountains. And I know that you are there and I know that you will stay with me and you're going to protect Hunter. And I knew that so firmly and so strongly. And I knew that no matter the outcome, that it was going to be okay, that we were going to be okay. And um, at that point, I didn't know that his leg would be amputated. I didn't know the extent of the injury. When I was told there was a possible, there was the possibility of his leg getting amputated, that was another just bomb being dropped. And it was kind of like, there is no way, no way my kid is going to lose a limb. Like that is not going to happen. And it came, they tried to save his leg and it took a few days. His foot started turning black and it was the morning of the amputation. And I just remember being upset, of course, but my husband came in and, you know, I just cried to him. I'm like, this just doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem fair that Hunter has to go through this, that he has to lose a limb. And my husband just so sweetly and so calmly just said, you know, this is, this is Heavenly Father protecting him. And at first I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is almost the opposite of that. But, and I knew that I was wrong when I thought that it was like a, like a small moment of thinking that, but we took a moment. It was just us in the room with Hunter. It was really early in the morning. It was very quiet in the hospital and Hunter was sleeping. He was mostly sedated. And we went through all of the blessings that had occurred. And the spot that he was bit was like the perfect spot for him to have a prosthetic leg. It wasn't above the knee, which is huge. If that knee joint is everything. Um, so he didn't lose his knee. He could have been killed by that dog easily. Um, and there was just so many more miracles that we knew had occurred. We just had to take a moment to see them and to believe in them. And to put aside the fact that we didn't get the miracle that we had prayed for. And we just, it was kind of like setting, setting the foundation of, okay, we've believed and relied on the savior up to this point and he's gotten us here and he's going to carry us through. And we knew that and we believed that and he has every step of the way. So you talk about miracles. What did you learn about the nature of miracles? 
<laughs> and I feel like that is like the biggest question of my life. When the accident happened and I knew that there was the possible, the possibility of amputation, I, um, I just prayed that it wouldn't happen. I prayed for that miracle and I knew, I knew, and I know that God could have granted that miracle. Um, in my mind, I thought I'm not going to have a sliver of doubt in my mind that he's going to grant this miracle because if I do, there's a possibility that it won't happen. And I had everybody praying and it ended up on like national news. Oh. And, um, and so a lot of people knew about this and, it, and I knew hundreds of people were praying. I knew it. And it was just kind of like, okay, if we have enough faith, there's enough people praying, then this miracle can happen. And that's not how miracles work. <laughs> and I had to learn that. I had to learn that even the strongest person, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is. If it's not Heavenly Father's will to grant that miracle, it won't happen. And it kind of like, not to have like a negative tone, but it kind of bothers me when people say, oh, if you have enough faith, miracles will happen. It's like, that's not, that's, I'm sorry, but that's not how they work. Um, if you have enough faith, you will see miracles, but it might not be the miracle that you want. But whenever there's like a lesson at church about miracles or someone brings up miracles, even now it's been seven years, even now it's like, like a gut check. Like, okay, we're going to talk about miracles. Um, because it was such that was a hard lesson. That was a hard lesson to learn. Um, but at the same time, I'm grateful for that lesson because it made me grow closer to Heavenly Father. It really did. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes. Yes, it okay. does. That, that miracles aren't always what we pray for. We don't always yeah. get granted what we pray for. But I loved how you said, if you look, you will see miracles, mm -hmm. but they won't necessarily always be the ones that you pray for. Yeah. What kind of miracles have you seen through this process, even if they're not the ones that you were hoping for or praying for? I think just not losing our faith. I think when people go through really hard times and they don't lose their faith, I think that's such a miracle because we can easily become bitter and question Heavenly Father's will. I just think that in and of itself has been a miracle. Just the people that we've been able to connect with, I feel like has been a miracle in our lives. That has changed my life to be surrounded by this community. Um, it was a few years after he lost his leg. We went to this one really cool, it's called a summit, like a conference type thing. And there were these people with like all these struggles. Like there was this guy that became paraplegic. He was a race car driver. And he became paraplegic and his passion was racing cars. And all of a sudden he like can't even use his body anymore. But then they made a system to where he could control the car through his mouth and blowing in like straws. Oh gosh. And then he could like raise his car, obviously not competitively, but it was like all these things. And like that, like that has changed my life. Like what happened to Hunter has changed my life and um, has just helped me and I mean, miracles don't have to be big. And I, and one thing too, that I do need to say, I think sometimes we question, why did that person get a miracle and not me? 
And that's hard. I think that's such a natural question that curiosity is normal. But I think we have to remember we are all on our own paths and our own journey. And whatever happens to us will hopefully benefit us and help us to grow into who we become. And that's a rough path to go down to always question, well, you saved that person, but you didn't save this person. Why did they get granted a miracle? Because miracles happen. I mean, two huge miracles that happened in my community. I'll just share one of them. But um, there was a girl who had drowned. Like it was like maybe a year before Hunter's accident. And the whole community heard about it. Everybody prayed that she would be okay. And all of a sudden, this picture started circulating around social media of this little girl um, walking down the hospital halls, like smiling, holding her parents' hands. And she was perfectly fine. And I don't know the details of it, but I just remember it went around. So-and-so had drowned. She's at the hospital. Everybody pray. And then all of a sudden, like, this miracle had happened. And and I that was what I thought of when Hunter's accident had happened. And I thought, I've seen these miracles in my life. And I know that you can make this one happen. And um, it just, it just really, that was like one of the nature of miracles too, to not question why did they get a miracle and not me? Even when Christ was on the earth, I'm sure there were some blind people who weren't healed. And I know that he raised some people from dead, the dead and he didn't raise everybody. Um, but it just wasn't their the path that they were supposed to take. Yeah. Those are very natural questions. I think the whys, it, because we want to understand as humans, yeah. we want to understand our condition and, and why certain things happen and other things don't. But one time I heard, and I don't even know who said this, I cannot remember, but it was somebody who had been through something really hard. And she talked about this why me mentality. And she said, I started to think, why not me? Mm -hmm. why should I be spared to this and not somebody else, you know? And I've thought about that a lot since I've heard it. Why not me? There's no reason why I shouldn't have to suffer a portion yeah. of, of Jesus's cross, essentially. Um, I think we all have to suffer in some way. So I don't know. I've, I've tried to keep that in mind. I've never been through anything like what you're describing, but I like to think about that just in general. Why not me? Why, why should I not have to struggle or suffer? But it is also really natural to say, to ask those why questions, you know, so yeah. I think we need to give ourselves some grace there too. Just yeah. like, let's, let's not stay there in a place that doesn't have answers, you yeah. know, or that we may not understand at this point. Well, that, those are some good things to understand about miracles. I, I love your, your thoughts and your perspectives. But one thing that you said was that it was a miracle that you kept your faith. How did you keep your faith through all of that? What did you do to hold on to your faith when things were really hard? I think I just, I kept trying. I kept putting forth an effort. I, I feel like I have a very good understanding that joy and happiness comes from Heavenly Father and from Christ. And so when we were in those really rough moments and we were still able to find joy, I knew that where that was coming from. And it just, I, the only thing that I can think is that Heavenly Father blessed me with this heart that made it, I don't want to say it was necessarily easy, but I do, I do feel like I was just really blessed with this 
with the ability to hold on to my faith. Um, and I think everyone, everyone's answer would be different with that. But I think you just always have to keep trying. You can't just think, oh, your faith is just going to stay stable. And you don't have to do anything to keep that faith. You know, we continue to go to church. We continue to want to feel the spirit. We continue to um, stay close to uplifting things. I read a lot. I read a lot of self-help. I, um, I read a lot of books of people who had struggled and listened to their stories and how they overcame. And some were Christian and some not. But yeah, I think that's kind of it. Just keep pressing forward. Just keep yeah. trying. Let's put one foot in front of the other. I think that's really, that's really good advice. So if you could go back and tell yourself anything pre-accident, what would you tell yourself? Uh, to be patient, to know that like healing is a journey and not a destination because I, I think I wanted things to go faster when it came to healing and when it came to Hunter progressing. Man, and if I could like show myself all the cool things that we've done because of what had happened, that would, I mean, I think anybody would want that. Like, you know, like, oh, just wait, just wait. There's more to come. There's better things to come. But I think there's always better things to come as long as you, like you said, as long as you keep pressing forward and look for opportunities. Um, you know, we're the author of our own stories. And I think that you know, I could have chosen to never go to camp, take Hunter to camp and meet this amazing amputee community. And from there grow and from there become advocates and from there become a writer, like everything just kept building and building and building. And, um, there's always hope. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell myself when, like one of my mottos that I've learned is that hope is never in vain. It is never in vain. Even if what you hope for doesn't happen, that hope was not in vain. Yeah, that gave you something to hold on to at a really difficult time. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay, Rosalie, we're going to wrap up here. It's been so great to talk to you. And I have one final question, and you know what's coming. So what does standing with the Savior mean to you? Standing with the Savior, I've kind of, um, first of all, I thought of it as like, what would it be like to stand with my best friend? And, you know, you think about your best friend who you love so many qualities of, and, and you admire them. And whenever you introduce them to someone, you're like, oh, you got to meet so-and-so. They're so great. And it's like you're a partnership. Like you love each other and you root for each other. And, and more than anything, you know, Christ is rooting for us and we stand with him and he will root for us. And my all-time favorite hymn is I know that my redeemer lives and when I thought of standing with Christ it meant believing in him and trusting him and letting him be there for me and my favorite part of that hymn is he lives to conquer my fears he lives to wipe away my tears he lives to calm my troubled heart and when I think of standing with the savior I think of all those things that I know can happen because I will stand with him. Thank you for that beautiful testimony and for being willing to share your story with us today. I appreciate it. You're full of light. Your story is full of hope. There's always something good to come and you are a good example of that. So thank you. 
Do you have anywhere online that people can connect with you if they would like to follow your story a little bit more? Yeah, so uh, we do have a website um, that has just a lot of information, not necessarily like our journey, but it's my name, rosaliemastaylor.com. On there, you can find a lot of resources, whether it comes to like literature, um, that's kind of our big thing, our books that are coming out. Hunter is writing one of them with me. And then our Instagram, um, just social media across the board is Mass Taylor Party of Five. And we share a lot of fun educating videos on there and also updates of our journey and all that fun stuff. Okay, fun. I will link all those in the show notes so people will be able to, to find you. But thank you okay. again for being here. I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much. All right, my friends, isn't Rosalie amazing? Isn't her story inspiring? I feel inspired after listening to her story. I know that for sure. I especially loved what she had to say about how we will see miracles if we have faith. They just may not be the miracles we anticipated. And that hope is never in vain. Those are my two big takeaways that have caused me to really stop and think. And I'm gonna be thinking about those for a while. And I'm grateful for Rosalie being willing to share her thoughts and her message. And I hope that you also found some good nuggets of wisdom to take away that will give you something to ponder over the next little while and help you to find more hope in your journey to Jesus. And as you learn to stand more firmly with him and to see miracles in your life. Thank you for being here, my friends. I'm so happy to have you here as always. And I will see you back here again next week. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me today. If you are ready to dive in deeper and join the stand movement, find me on Instagram at Lynette Shepard. That's two N's, two P's and an A-R-D or at LynetteShepard.com. If you like what you heard today, please consider sharing the show with a friend or leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That works wonders in helping us to find the people that we can help. Thank you again, and remember, you were born to stand. See you next time.